Morning, Crosswalk. Good to see you guys here today. Man, a lot of people showed up. I want to give a shout out to our Norwegian friends from, I'm going to say the school's name incorrectly, Chutifurden. That's not right. Sorry, I apologize. It's our Seventh-day Avenue school in Norway. So let's give them all a welcome, the student bodies here. Thank you guys for coming. And... Um, and Matthias Marley, um, I was just talking to your mom on Facebook. She says, call her. <laughs> so, no. Uh, interesting, Sam's in Norway right now. Sam Lenore, um, our good friend, is in Norway right now speaking at an event they have this weekend. So um, a lot of cross, cross uh, oceans kind of stuff. There's a bunch of you sitting in the back. Come forward. There's seats towards the front. If you're sitting next to an empty chair, you just need to move. Move. You just need to move because we want people to be able to sit together um, and be able to sit through the service. We also have a noon. Go out, grab a coffee, come back in an hour or so. Um, you can do that. But uh, it's so good to be here. I, uh, I've missed you. It's been a long week. Um, but there's two things that I want you to understand. Number one, Crosswalk 15, which is on October 20. Don't let it be confusing. Um, we want you to come and we want you to bring somebody who has not been to church either in a long time or has not come to church before at all. This is a phenomenal event for people to come hang out, food trucks, food vendors, um, lots of stuff to play on and with. And it's just going to be a really good time, a concert at 6 p.m. So we want you guys to come and we want you to bring somebody who has not um, been in church for a while or hasn't come before and who you've been praying for. Hopefully you all are always praying for those who've either left the faith or need to find faith. And so, um, so October 20 is Crosswalk 15. It's always a good time. And secondly, we're doing a trunk or treat. We told you this on October 31. And I heard a couple of rumblings. And so I just want to address those rumblings. Let's be 100% clear. Nobody's celebrating Halloween here, right? <laughs> And, and listen, I get it. Some of us grow up with just the, the rhetoric of how evil it is. And certainly, like Halloween is ridiculous, right? It's basically just this, um, just this consumerist holiday where people spend a ridiculous amount of money. We don't celebrate Halloween. But what we do want to do is we want to put together an event so that the next time Halloween rolls around, kids in this community go, it's Halloween. I guess we got to go to church, Amen. right? So that's what we're trying to do. So let's be clear on that, all right? <clears throat> now... Now, having said that, if it's not your thing and you just can't get your head around it, you can't get your heart around it, that is fine. That's okay. But understand our heart and where we're coming from. Everything that we do in this church is so that more people might meet the Jesus Christ that we've come to know and love. And everything that we've done at this church thus far, whether it be our coffee bar, whether it be yoga when we had community yoga classes, our clinics, our community partner lunches, our dinners, every single thing that we have done has brought people to Christ and we've baptize people through those experiences. So we believe that evangelism is not a program that you run. We believe that evangelism is an orientation of the heart when we are constantly trying to let people know that they need Jesus and Jesus loves them dearly. So here are hearts on that. And, and that fits in with exactly where we start because Romans 10 verse 1 begins much like Romans 9 verse 1, where Paul is talking to his Jewish brothers and sisters in the nation of Israel. And he says, listen, dear brothers and sisters. The longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Now, if you were here with us last week, you remember that we talked about the fact that no one is fated to either hell or heaven, that it is a free moral choice that we get to make as free moral agents and praise God for that. And so Paul is continuing along in that vein saying he wants them to turn away. You see, the problem is 
the problem is they've, they've, they've fallen in love with something else, right? But his heart's desire is again, that they are to be saved, that they know who Jesus Christ is. And we all know people who have either, again, fallen away from the faith or who have never really found a home in a faith community. And, and unfortunately, I think what happens is we become afraid to talk to them. And we become afraid to witness to them because we feel like it will be judgmental. Now, there's a way that you can do it that absolutely is judgmental. There's another way that you can do it where it is not judgmental. And so we're gonna talk about that a little bit more as we go through today's um, stuff. We're, we're gonna just spend Romans 10, one through 10. That's all we're going through. But Paul has said, listen, I want, you, I want you to be saved. I want you to understand who Jesus is. It's really important. And then he says in, in verse two, he says, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. Misdirected zeal. Let me, how can we come up with a good illustration of misdirected zeal? Have you ever met somebody who's just a little bit too in love with a sports team? Some of you are like, you want to shoot, you want me to show you my tattoo? Um, it's okay. Some of you are just way too in love with a sports team. I find misdirected zeal, misdirected zeal particularly in Cowboys fans. Um, I knew there was going to be someone. Oh, see, misdirected zeal right there. I think that the way that whole thing went south is when the Cowboys came out and were like, we're America's team. And the rest of the teams in America were like, what? No, we're here too. We just live in Nebraska. And they're like, it doesn't matter. Right? So I think, I think this ends up being misdirected zeal. You, you can love something. You can be passionate and deeply passionate about the wrong things. In fact, Paul was deeply passionate about the wrong thing when, before he was converted in the book of Acts. Paul was persecuting Christians because he wanted to keep his faith pure, his faith being the Jewish faith. He wanted to keep it pure, he wanted to keep it clean, and he wanted to make sure that there was nobody who was sullying the good name of his faith. And he was, he was zealous, of course, but it was misdirected. So he continues on in verse three, he says, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God and trying to keep the law. He has no doubt about the sincerity. He gets it. But the proper word for zeal without knowledge, for commitment without reflection, or enthusiasm without understanding is simply this. It's fanaticism. And friends, fanatics are a pain. Now there's fandoms coming from the same word, fandom. So like, let's say you're super into Harry Potter and every once in a while you dress up like it, that's fandom. That's weird, but fine, <laughs> right? Like maybe don't come to church that way or do, and that'll be fun too. That's the other option. Then there's fundamentalism, which is a little bit, there's a nuance different. Fundamentalism is that God agrees with me. Therefore, this, the, I have to make sure I protect what God agrees with. But fanaticism is a little bit different. You see, fanaticism closes down learning. It closes down discussion and it closes down openness. And what it does is it says, I know everything there is to know and I am rabidly zealous about this particular set of beliefs or this particular understanding. Because we all have that friend, right? We all have that friend who doesn't just dislike something, but like, let's say they go to a restaurant and they don't like it, they have a bad experience. And so you go, hey, let's go there. And they're like, I hate that place. 
And you're like, well, that seems a little aggressive. And they're like, no, I'll never step foot in there again. And you're like, you need to relax, basically. Like, you've got some sort of weird issue. And he's like, no, I hate, I will never go. I was so offended. That's a fanatic, right? And then they would never be, never be convinced it's different than the way that it is. Now, Interestingly, within the Seventh-day Adventist church, very early on, we had a safeguard against fanaticism. And I don't think that they necessarily knew what was happening, but we very early on believed in this thing called present truth. And present truth is our strongest safeguard against fanaticism. Now, let me define what present truth is for you, because sometimes in today's Seventh-day Adventist world, we use it as the present truth. That was what Ellen White said, and that's the only present truth that there is. Present truth stopped being present when Ellen White died, right? That's the way we often think about it. However, that is not how they thought about it. The way they thought about it was that God is continuing to reveal new things to us so that we might learn, we might grow, we might have a better understanding of who God is. Now, let me tell you why this is important. When we started this church, this Seventh-day Adventist denomination, we were anti-Trinitarian. We actually were like, nope, this Trinity is not the right thing, right? This is weird because what it does is it says, Jesus, therefore, is not God. And if you say Jesus is not God, you're actually guilty of a heresy that showed up in the second century with a guy named Arius called the Arian heresy, which says Jesus is not God. There was a time where Jesus was not. He was a created being, so he certainly couldn't been, been of God. They dealt with that, friends. By the way, I told you I was teaching a Christian history class, so you're going to get some stuff. Um, um, they dealt with that in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea where 320 bishops came together and they were like, nope. And in fact, every picture you see, I should have put it up on the screen. Every picture you see of the Council of Nicaea is a bunch of bishops standing around with Arius on the floor and then basically stomping on him. They're like, we won because Arius was teaching that Jesus was not God. So at the beginning of the Seventh-day Adventist church, we were guilty of heresy from a traditional Christian understanding. Present truth allowed us about five to 10 years later to go, uh, that doesn't work. We don't believe that. We're gonna drop our anti-Trinitarianism and we're gonna pick up the concept as God reveals it to us through scripture, because it's, it's clear, through scripture that we should be Trinitarians and that Jesus has always been God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? We began to lean into that. So here's the thing, because of present truth, this concept of present truth, we did not have to continually defend why we were not Trinitarians. We were convinced and believed that God led us to Trinitarianism and we changed. How good is that? If we hadn't done that, we would have been something other than Christian, just so you know. And, and so God saw fit to bring us back into the Christian fold by believing that. Now that's really important. And, and present truth is our strongest safeguard against this kind of fanaticism still today. And in fact, when we look back at what was happening in the first century there, when Paul was writing, see, see, he was dealing with a group of people that fanatically rejected Jesus. In their zeal for God, they rejected Jesus which sounds silly to us, but for them, it was absolutely true. What they did not understand is that rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. And this is where they were misguided. To reject the son is to reject the father. This is the whole problem. They were not listening to the Holy Spirit, but failing to trust the God we see fully realized in who Jesus is. Romans 10, four. 
For Christ already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Some translations actually say Christ is the end of the law. The end of the law? What does that mean? It means that we did away with the law? No, of course not. What it means is that it was the aim of the law to reveal righteousness, right? That's what the law was supposed to do, although the law revealed our sin. But it seems like if you kept the law, you would have known what righteousness was. Actually, the term end of the law can also be translated as the aim, the contents, the substance, the sum and total of the law. Of course, it's fulfillment. But if Jesus is the full revelation of God, then Jesus is also the full revelation of the law as well. And fulfilling this law is understood as being righteous. But Israel chose the law rather than real, true righteousness because the law ultimately doesn't lead us to righteousness, even though they thought it did. You see, Israel believed in the law, but not in the one that the law revealed. Think about it. You spend your whole life trying to keep the law so that you might be righteous. Then one shows up who has kept the law and is the full revelation of righteousness, but yet you don't understand it. Why? Because you're too busy thinking about yourself and navel-gazing to make sure that you're keeping the law. Isn't that fascinating? It seems like the people who were most in love with the law would have been most in love with Jesus because he's the fulfillment of the law. He's keeping it. They didn't understand what the law did. And they were so wrapped up in their own righteousness. Now, if you remember last week, I fought pretty hard against the idea of predestination. And Calvin is one of those church fathers, if you will, who really fought for predestination. But I'm going to quote Calvin here, and I don't do it that often. Let me tell you why. We are discerning people right? You feel like you're not sure. <laughs> I don't know what that word means. Um, discerning means you're able to make a good decision. So um, you can read Calvin and not agree with everything he says, but find things that you do agree with in his writing. So I'm going to quote Calvin, even though I fought against Calvin last week, but it's okay. We're friends now. Um, he's been dead for a long time. He's easy to be friends with. John Calvin says this. He says, the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. Amen. When you stop looking at yourself, you can begin to see the righteousness of God. And again, I don't quote him very often, but I think this one's pretty good. Now, Paul's about to do a really interesting thing. What Paul's about to do is Paul's about to make an argument for faith against law, and he's going to use Moses on both sides of the coin. Moses versus Mo Moses. Are you ready? Already, this is fascinating. Romans 10:5. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commandments. This is always the limitation of the law, right? This is actually a quote from Leviticus 18:5. And then he says, but faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth, and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back again. He says, these are silly things. And Moses actually said, these are silly things, right? We have access to Christ already for he has already come. He's already died. He's already risen and he's already accessible to us through the Holy Spirit. So don't be worried about who did what. You need to worry about the fact that Christ is who he is. And then in Romans 10, 8, he says, in fact, it actually says this, and this is Deuteronomy 30, 14. The message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and it is in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith we preach. So he's quoting Moses on both sides. And you can imagine his Jewish brothers and sisters would have been like, what? Can you use Moses that way? 
And he goes, yes, I absolutely can. Because every scripture is a revelation of who Jesus is, right? Romans 10, 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, that's it. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, we as humans always run to process. So that's all I have to do? No, don't you get, don't do that. Stop it. Right? For a long time within evangelical Christianity and certainly within the Adventist church as well, a long time there was this idea that if you just pray the sinner's prayer, then you're good. Well, conversion takes a lot longer than that, right? Conversion is a work of the heart. It's not just saying certain words and then like, oh, you get a cookie. That's not how it works really, right? I mean, it would be nice to get a cookie anytime, but, um, but that's not how this works right? So in this is actually the very first creed of Christianity. Just so you know, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, this is the first and simplest of all the Christian creeds. And we don't know that much about creeds from a Seventh-day Adventist standpoint because we're a non-creedal people, which we'll talk about in just a second. But there are some creeds that are pretty interesting. And the first creed that we can really kind of identify short of Jesus is Lord actually comes from Ignatius, who was a student of John the Revelator in the, in the, first, in the second, early second century, about 110 um, AD. Ignatius writes this, and I love the way he starts. He says this, turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ. So he's like, don't even listen to him. They're not talking about Jesus. Don't worry about it. Avoid, uh, turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ. And then he starts to do theology, who was of David's line, born of Mary, who was truly born, ate and drank. Because one of the heresies was the docetus heresy, which was saying, God just seen, Jesus just seems like he's a human, but he's not. So that's why he goes, he ate and he drank. It's real. Then he says it was fully persecuted under Pontius Pilate, so he gives a historical hook to hang his hat on, truly crucified and died, while those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth all saw it, all beheld it, who also was truly raised from the dead, so he's affirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Father having raised him, so that's a, a theological statement there, who in like manner will raise us, who also believe in him, his Father, I say, and then he repeats himself, will raise us in Christ Jesus, apart from whom we have not true life. That's a good, it's a good creed. It's kind of complicated. By the way, they got more and more complicated as time went on because there was more and more heresy. There's more and more people who were like, oh, Jesus isn't this, Jesus isn't that. So it kind of, um, they dealt with, they dealt with the first heresy, kind of the Arian heresy, Arius, who was really fighting against the idea that Jesus was born. They dealt with that in 325 AD in the Council of Nicaea, which by the way, is when we got our first list of books in the Bible that we have right now, which is kind of interesting as well. They finally kind of settled on a solid creed in 700 or so. And I believe it was at the Council of Constantinople in 700, where we kind of ended up with the Apostles' Creed. Here's what's interesting though. Councils and popes were fighting and about 700, the popes won, so they didn't hold any councils anymore, because why would you get uh, advice from people when you're in charge, <laughs> is apparently how they dealt with that. But here's what's interesting, okay, so we've dealt with the little creeds, and Jesus is Lord is definitely the first and most simple creed. But here's the deal, Seventh-day Adventists are non-creedal, so we actually don't believe in creeds, if you will. Now, that doesn't mean we don't agree with a lot of things that were said within a creed, but we don't have our own specific creed. In fact, this is because of present truth. It's because the early church pioneers 
said, God is going to continue to reveal more things to us. So we better be continued conversation when it comes to our theology, which is great. In fact, in 1861, Jan Loughborough says this famous quote about creeds in general. He says, the first step of apostasy is to get up a creed, telling us what we shall believe. The second is to make that creed a test of fellowship. The third is to try members by that creed. The fourth is to denounce as heretics those who do not believe that creed. And fifth, to commit persecution against such. That's pretty serious. It's a good thing we don't have a creed. We've got 28 fundamental beliefs. (laughs) But to be clear, they're not a creed. And by the way, we expect that that language will change. You've heard me say that before. Praise God for that because that means we're still listening to present truth. We still believe that God can work. We don't believe in settled truth. We believe in, in, in present truth, that God is still revealing himself to us. And this means that we have to have kind of a big tent. So there's people who don't all agree on exactly the same thing, fellowshipping together, eating at, at God's table together, not necessarily eating off each other's plates, but being willing to be in conversation. Praise God for that. That's awesome. There's no problem with that. And we need to keep that tradition within the Seventh-day Adventist church. We need to make sure that we don't investigate people on what they believe to see if they're like us and see if they're orthodox. We can tell if they're crazy. You all know someone. And if you don't, it's you. Um, but what, what this means is that we've always been a, a good thing. So I was, I was actually in Norway a few years ago. I was working with one of the Lutheran healthcare systems in Norway. And one of the guys who was working in faith and health, we were outside of Oslo. He said, hey, let's go to dinner. And I'm like, great, let's go to dinner. So I go with this theologian to dinner. We have this phenomenal meal. I wish I could remember the name of the restaurant because it was very good. Um, but as we're sitting there, he said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the Seventh-day Adventist church and the Lutheran church used to have really great conversations. I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, no, no, no. Actually, like we had formal conversations between the two faith communities, between the two denominations. And we actually wrote a book about it. um, And I have one for you. And he handed it to me. I I didn't know about this. And he said, yeah, for about four or five years, we had these just wonderful, robust theological conversations between some of your theologians and some of our theologians. And he started to name off some of the theologians, people that I knew, which was cool. And, And he said, you know, it was great. And then I don't know what happened. You guys just stopped talking to us. He's like, that was like in the 80s. We haven't talked to you guys since then, which is really a shame because I really enjoyed hearing about what you guys believe. Now, he didn't become a Seventh-day Adventist. That's not a loss, by the way, because that wasn't the point of the conversation, to convert, because this is two people who have different views but still deeply love Jesus Christ, two, you know, faith communities coming together and having a phenomenal dialogue where we both learned and we both grew. That seems pretty healthy to me. But when we shut our doors and we say we can't read anybody else or we can't look at anybody else or we can't worship with anybody else, every time that we do that, we become more and more fanatical about our faith. And when we do that, pretty soon we're going to put a creed together and pretty soon we're going to try you or we're going to try me on those same lines, which is definitely not where we come from within Adventism. So we actually have to watch and see what's going on within our denomination to make sure that never happens. Because I never want to be the kind of people who ostracize somebody else just because you don't believe exactly like I do. Because that's not our tradition. If it were our tradition, I don't think I would be a Seventh-day Adventist because I grow so much from continued conversation and reading and learning and singing. You know, every song we sing is not from a Seventh-day Adventist. 
Because right now we don't got the best praise song. Somebody start writing it. <laughs> Bethel's kind of killing it on it, right? And, but we'd be like, mm, we don't believe what Bethel believes, but we sing their songs, start writing. <laughs> or relax, relax and understand that we can discern when we don't necessarily theologically agree with a certain group, but that doesn't mean we won't be in fellowship with them anymore until there's a line that is drawn where it's clear that we can't have a conversation anymore. But for me, that line is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That's the creed. That's what we believe in. And there's a lot more that we believe in, but if we're going to make a And by the way, that means that when you share your faith, and this is fascinating. Have you ever noticed as a Seventh-day Adventist that when you share your faith, somebody says, what, you believe, what do you believe? And you talk about what you eat. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and half the time, it's not actually what you eat, but it's what we're supposed to be eating. <laughs> You're actually like, well, we, what do you guys believe? Well, we don't eat meat. Well, I mean, I like me some good barbecue, but I, you know, most of, most of us don't like that gets weird. Why wouldn't you start with, what do you believe in? I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's Lord. Isn't that the place we start? Because that's never embarrassing, right? That's never embarrassing. Unless somebody goes, oh, I just don't believe in God anymore. Then you can have an, uh, you know, a conversation about the ontological reasons for God, but that's a different conversation, right? So for some reason, for some reason, we got to I guess we got to know what it is that we have in our hearts and what's on our lips. Romans 10.10 10 says this, for it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So I guess the question begins, has the gospel been written on your heart? Do you remember hearing it for the first time? and realizing that this is what your heart has needed forever. In fact, it is actually the language that your heart's been speaking to you the whole time, but you didn't understand it until somebody verbalized it for you. That's why the term conversion is coming home because it's what we were supposed to be. It's what we were supposed to know about God. It's what we were supposed to know about ourselves. That's why conversion is such a powerful thing because you finally find the home that you never had. So, how do your lips speak of this gospel? If you're embarrassed to be talking to somebody that you know about God, then make sure you understand what you're telling them because I've never been ashamed of the gospel for it is the power to save. I've been embarrassed about some other things. Sometimes the conversations about our dietary, you know, guidelines. But why would we start there? Those are wonderful expressions of who we believe God, of how we believe God made us and how we can honor him. But when somebody asks you what you believe in, do you really believe in veggie meat? <laughs> no, friends, what you believe in is Jesus Christ. That's what brings you here. You don't sing songs to Vegilinks, you sing songs to Jesus. I'll stop. So that means that you have to know what, what you're really telling them about. Is it Jesus or is it something else? Is it almost Jesus? Or are the words you committed to them about who Jesus is? Has the gospel been written on your heart? That's it, right? Has the gospel been written on your heart has, has the tattoo artist that is God reached down and woven it into the very arteries within that organ within you? 
so that everyone can see who it is and that the words of your mouth just naturally, because of course, why wouldn't they speak of anything else? Why wouldn't that be what comes out of your mouth? Has the gospel been written on your heart? And do you declare it? Because when the gospel is written on your heart, you have to declare. And listen, if it's written on your heart and you don't declare, you need to take a look at your heart and see what got written on there because the gospel compels us to speak. And for those of you who do not have the gospel in your heart, don't speak because you're a liar and you're a hypocrite. So be quiet until that gospel is finished being written on your heart. I love that Paul wouldn't let his friends and his family go. I love that he continually writes, I want you to know who Jesus is. We have to have the same ethos that we will not let one of these people in our lives leave. And that doesn't mean we're gonna hammer them with the gospel. The gospel is not a hammer. The gospel is a parachute. The gospel is the thing that saves us when we are falling into wretchedness. When we are falling into the pits of hell, it is the gospel that is the only thing that will stop that descent and bring us back up on the wind that God creates. What is written on your heart? What are the words on your lips? And how can we love people into the kingdom of God? Let's bow our heads today. Jesus, thank you for placing it so deeply in Paul's heart that he couldn't be distracted. He could not be distracted from preaching your name, from preaching your grace, from preaching your will. Lord, we are so thankful that these words have been uttered so plainly and so clearly so as not to distract us from your gospel. Lord, may the gospel be written deeply within our hearts. May you ink it in again and again. And when it begins to fade, may you bring something or someone or a community or, or a word back into our lives so that it is made brand new again, Lord. So thankful for you. So as we finish today, Lord, accept our praises, accept our love, accept our song, because it is all for you today, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.